morning. Hope you got your Bibles with you. Turn with me to John chapter 6. You should have some notes that look sort of like this right here, and they're over there on the table. You're not going to bother me at all if you need to get up and, and get those notes. Um, you'll also notice, let me just orient you if you're new with us, on the back of your, your outline, you'll see something that says, now what? Uh, what that is, is basically our small group curriculum. Our small group curriculum that meets, and we meet throughout the week, even beginning tonight and throughout the week. What we talk about is the message. There's no other curriculum that you're supposed to study other than God's Word. And these questions are what we talk about when we gather together. So just so you know that, um, prepare yourself also as if you're going to come with us and 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 grow with us. We preach the whole counsel of God's Word. We pick books of the Bible, and we go through the whole thing, and we're on our journey through John, and we find ourselves in this profound chapter, chapter 6, about the bread of life. There's going to be a couple signs today, and then we're going to spend about two more weeks looking through John 6. At the end of every service, we challenge ourselves to actively respond and so you'll see that the tables are set. And listen, they will be set until the Lord comes back. Because this is how we remember as God's church. We respond in, by coming to the tables every week here. We also respond through your generosity. Let us orient ourselves now. Just keep your seats. We're going to jump right in this morning. Let me remind us where we are. In John chapter 5, you can even flip back and look there was this, there's just been this issue of authority. Who has it? Jesus has dared to heal someone on the Sabbath day, and even worse than that, told him to roll up his mat and, and, and carry it. And according to the religious leaders of that day, he had broke the Sabbath day because not only did you have the Mosaic law about the Sabbath day, you had about 39 rules that they were supposed to follow in order to keep the one. Jesus dared to break their rules, and so the issue is, on whose authority? Who do you think you are? So chapter 5 was couched in Moses in the Mosaic law. Remember, he said, you pin your hopes on Moses. And he pointed to me. So now we find ourselves in the context of Jesus ministering in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. He finds himself beside the Sea of Galilee. We'll talk about more about that later. But we can't underestimate, you can't overthink how much they thought about Moses. Just if you go into a town, especially large cities downtown, and you just drive around and you just notice the buildings, notice the streets, notice what they're named. They'll tell you who they thought a lot of, who they revered. You go to Charlotte, what are some of the street names you'll see? Martin Luther King Boulevard and Billy Graham, right? Those are people that, that our culture and our society around here revered. We name our buildings after them. We name our libraries after them. We name their ships in the military after our presidents and other people. <laughs> if they could have named a street in, in that area, it would have been Moses Boulevard, right? 
I mean, they thought as much of, who's this guy that you have? Your favorite preacher, maybe evangelist, that if someone dared to say anything about him, you'd just be done with him. I don't know who you think you are, dare questioning him. That's Moses. And so, seems to be that Jesus is coming against his authority, what, what he says. You see... We can all get skewed, and so have they. That Moses actually gave the law. Moses actually delivered them from slavery. It was Moses that gave the manna. It was Moses that gave the water out of the rock. It was Moses that parted the Red Sea. Oh, how we can get skewed and hold people in too high of esteem. That was the issue. There's a lot of parallels here in, this, in these two. In, these, the, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus walking on the sea. You see, the people followed Moses. The people were following Jesus. The people were following Moses for much of the same reason they were following Jesus. He provides. He's the provider. Moses went up the mountain to receive the law. Jesus ascends the mountain with his disciples, and these potentially some nearly 20,000 people surrounded the area. This is really important context for the next few weeks. This took place near the Passover when Moses led the people out of slavery and towards the promised land. Can't be underestimated that that was the season they found themselves in. The people expected a prophet. You remember Deuteronomy 18? That's in your notes. We read that last week. It was Moses that prophesied, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers, and it is him you shall listen. They were, they were expecting this prophet to come. And what they were expecting was freedom from the tyranny of the Romans, ease, prosperity. But what we want to see this morning is very simply, Jesus is the better Moses who provides and rescues a people for God. And so we're going to make our case, so to speak, by looking at these two signs, this one sign and this miracle of what happened, and we're going to see the provider and the rescuer, and then we're going to come, hopefully, to the conclusion that Jesus is the better Moses. Let's, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, In the midst of a season where we have turned the physical into a God that we worship. Oh God, correct us today. That we need to live whatever season you give us by putting your power on display. Oh God, may you do that in me today. May you do that in us today. That wherever we find ourselves we are indwelled by the power of the very Holy Spirit of God. Lord, help us to live every day putting that power on display. Oh God, do it in us. Do it in this church. Rescue King's Mountain and Cherville and Blacksburg and Shelby from our self-centered Assuming greed so that we may serve the living King. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus provides. He provides. He's at the sea. You remember the story? He ascends the mountain. Some 5,000 men 
follow him. There's a couple things I want you to see. Jesus provides by feeding the people, all the people. I want you to see something. In context, this is important. You see, the prophets of the Old Testament provided. Uh, turn with me. I want you to see this. It's one of those passages, one of those stories you, you just might forget about. Second Kings. Second Kings. In chapter 4. Now, don't you wish you lived in a town called Belshalishah? Belshalishah. Say that about five times real fast. I was like, I better look that up and make sure I'm saying that right. Second Kings chapter 4, look at verse 42. A man came from Belshalishah bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them. And they ate and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. Reckon that situation was in anybody's mind that day? You see that the prophets provided, Moses provided, Exodus chapter 3. It was the Lord who told Moses to lead the people out. Exodus 3, 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Goes on and in in verse 10 and says, Come, talking to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Think about that with me for a minute. Moses leads a sea of people out of Egypt. They're going to travel as nomads. They don't have land. They don't have a house. They don't have time to plant crops and wait for them to grow. How in the world are you going to feed and take care of all these people? Answer, God would provide. Not Moses. Brothers and sisters, you, like me, are instruments in the Redeemer's hands, as Paul Tripp says. So Moses leads these people out. Exodus 16, flip over, you're going to see this is an important context to understand the next few weeks. Verse 3, And the people said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And when we sat by the Meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out of into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a daily portion every day. Tell me what he's saying here. That I may what? What does it say? Test them. Whether they will walk in my law or not. Yahweh would provide for them, but only enough for that day. What did they have to do the next day? 
They had to trust that the Lord would provide. That was not only the point. You see, this is important. Yahweh provides as he tests. This is exactly the context that we find ourselves in in John chapter 6. Look at verse 2. Jesus provides as he tests. And a large crowd. Now back in John 6 verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, seeing the large crowd was coming to him. Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So don't miss the basic thing to hear, the obvious. There's a people in need. There is a large crowd of people in a desolate place. No Wendy's, no drive throughs We talked about the other week, no Taco Bell. Can't get the family pack. There was just, if they were going to be hungry, Jesus looked up and he saw need. What kind? When Jesus looked at the people, what did he see? Jesus saw something physically and he saw something spiritually. Don't miss the physical. <laughs> Jesus met their physical needs. Yes, all of them. That's the obvious. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus also saw something spiritual. Listen, I'm going to make some very clear points today. Don't misunderstand me that I am demeaning the physical. But there is a supremacy, an order of things in Scripture. We must see them. Jesus saw something spiritually. Matthew 9, look at verse 36. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw a need. That need was both physical and spiritual. There was also a test going on. Jesus was not only the provider, he was also testing. There's hence the question. He asked Philip, going to do? Look at verse 5 again. Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now just imagine, I think uh, Kings Mountain has about 10,000 or so people. Estimates are they could have been as much as 20,000 people surrounding Jesus. It is just, hey Philip, where are we going to buy bread for everybody? What would you have said? <laughs> Probably what he said. There was a test. And there was a royal failure of the test. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So one denarius was a day's pay for common labor. 200 denarii was eight months wages. So that's what, you can sort of get what he, what Philip, he's just looking at this just thinking logically here, Jesus. Just thinking pragmatically. Uh, I don't think you quite understand what you just said. Andrew looks like he's going to do a little bit better. Do you see? One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, verse 9, There's a little boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. Sounds pretty good until you get the butt, you know? Peter just stopped at the butt. He'd have been all right. But what are these for so many? Now, 
think of a barley loaf. You may be thinking of a loaf of bread like we buy at the store. This was about the size of a Twinkie, right? So five, you'd had a five Twinkies and a couple sardines, right? Anybody ever ate any sardines? That, that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not very appetizing. That, sort of a pickled meat, pickled fish of some kind. That's what this little boy had. Barley loaves were the inexpensive bread of the poorer class of that time. So what was Jesus' test? Why did he ask them that for? This is not a test of their ability. It was a test of his identity. That's the issue. That's the issue in our lives. This is the issue in theirs. He wasn't giving them a test to teach teach them how to problem solve or to think critically about the issues that they're going to face in life. He was teaching them about who he was. And his intention was to put his power on display so that they might trust him. We've all seen God's work in our life, haven't we? (laughs) How many meals have you missed? God's work, God provides for his people. He's proven it over and over again, and yet when the storm comes, we still doubt. We still lean towards pragmatic. We got a problem. How much is in the bank? How much credit do I have? That's the way we... Jesus is teaching us, is teaching them that we need to trust Him. The first question is, who is our king? Not how much is in our bank. Jesus puts His power on display. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and began, and when He had given thanks, He distributed to those that were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. See, Jesus used their failure to demonstrate his power. He took that which they had that they thought was nearly a joke, and he used that to put his power on display. How does God put his power on display today? Same way he did then. Turn with me to Matthew 6, another chapter 6, another chapter 6, and another gospel that's really important. Matthew chapter 6. Let's God put his power on display. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, more valuable than they? Verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? It's important to actually believe right now. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? The issue in whole of scripture is this issue of faith think about it how is God putting his glory on display right now we call these things systems 
the ecosystem, the solar system, the digestive system, the circulatory system. I looked that up. I started thinking about it. I looked up system. Here's what it is. A set of things working together as parts of a mechanism or an interconnecting network. You, brothers and sisters, in this world are irreducibly complex. It is how God puts his glory on display that confounds the scientist who says we evolved over a series of blobs. And yet what happens to a system when one part doesn't work right? The whole system shuts down. This is how God puts his glory on display. Without a God to develop the system. There is no eco. There is no circulation. There is no digestion. You ever had a surgery trying to get your digestive system working again, somebody? You know what happens when one thing stops. This is how God puts his glory on display. But that, listen, that as amazing as it is, is not ultimate. How does God put his glory on display ultimately? This is John's point. He sends his son. God wrapped in humanity the sending of the son of man that's how he puts his glory on display so don't miss this little the simple point of the feeding of the 5,000 Jesus' point only I satisfy trust me trust me we got a question in the growth group discussion of who did Jesus really do the feeding of the 5,000 for the people or the disciples y'all talk about that look at John chapter 6 again now look at verse 12 and when they had eaten their fill he told the disciples gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost verse 13 so they gathered up gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves by those who had eaten one guy says it this way when Jesus supplies it is never too little this is his point, right? At the end of this section, all are satisfied. All had plenty to eat. So much so that he took up the fragments of the bread and there were 12 baskets. That's significant. You had 12 tribes of Israel that God had always taken care of in redemptive history. And now you had 12 disciples 11 of them and then the 12th was added after Judas would be the leaders of the church you could say that they were the first church members the first leaders God not only took care of his people in the old he would take care of them in the new I satisfy trust me Jeremiah 31 just listen to it Jeremiah 31 14 I will feast the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. My goodness. I will use my goodness to satisfy my people. Then we see this. I don't know. It does something different to me than, than every time you go through the God's Word, something will impact you a little different. This was just sad to see something like this and then see Jesus depart. He depart. That word could actually mean to take refuge. Look at verse 14. And when the people saw the signs they had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come to take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
What were they saying? Jesus, you will be our king. Listen, think about how many people were there. There was enough of them. <laughs> you will be our king. They were partially right in their identity, but they were totally wrong with their expectation. They were partially right. He was the full and final and the perfect prophet that, would, that had come into the world. But they were wrong with their expectation. And they weren't about to ask questions. We need more of this free food. More of these blessings. If, if they were, here's this mindset. If Moses led us out of Egypt... Where is he going to lead us? Wow. What was their focus? Food? Victory? But not their sin. Not on the radar. Not their need. Not the Son of Man coming down to earth. Not the bread of life. Not, not any kind of real assessment of who they are and how in the world could they approach a holy God. None of that. Only a God that would meet their physical need. Listen, I'm going to make a spiritual point. This is a spiritual point, not a physical one. We often magnify our physical need over our spiritual need. Our physical safety over our spiritual safety. Now, I've thought a lot about what I'm going to say. Now, this is a spiritual point. Our kids are in school and colleges, and we are consumed with COVID. Can I ask you a question? Which is more dangerous, their physical safety or their spiritual safety? If our kids get sick, 98 to 99% chance they will feel bad and they will get better. But listen to me today. There is a 98 to 99% chance that if your child goes to a secular education system, they will be strategically de-Christianized before they get out of college. And yet we are blind to it. And we act like we're more concerned whether they get physically sick or whether they go to hell. And brothers and sisters, we need to wake up today because we have the same problem as the children of Israel who wants a king to remove our physical issues while we neglect the spiritual. And it is to our detriment, brothers and sisters. We must wake up during this time of suffering that we have something more to fear than simply being sick. It is to stand in front of the living God with no righteousness, with no robe, and no spirit. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is why you are here today and not with Jesus. We all focus on that. I'm not pointing any fingers to anybody but me. I focus on the physical too much. And I do not focus on the spiritual near enough. This that was going on with them was amplified, you see, because of the Passover. You, you doesn't mean anything to us, but think of the 4th of July. How do you feel as an American on the 4th of July? Proud? Excited? This is how they felt during the Passover. They were remembering their freedom, their zeal, their nationalism. They were a proud people. 
And so they thought during this time, they saw him. They were already excited, so this is the answer. But listen to me this morning. Jesus will not be forced, played, manipulated, or bargained with. Jesus cannot be bargained with. He has no bargaining chip for blessings. Though the prosperity gospel promises it. And we in part begin to buy into it. That we want to serve a Jesus that will answer our man-centered prayers. And leave the mission of God undone. Jesus is Lord. He does not need us. We need Him. He, he does not up there in heaven right now saying, Oh, Battlegrounds of worshiping today. You know, I really needed that. No, no. We need our worship accepted by Him. We are created for worship. We are stamped with that. We will worship. We must worship Him. We need Him. We must surrender our lives to Him to use our lives the way He sees fit. Jesus departed. And there's a tragedy in that. And He sends His disciples across the sea. See, the test is not done. He's not done. The test is the main thing. He's not done. So he, Jesus rescues by coming to his disciples and they're on the sea. It says, when evening came, verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus hadn't come and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four, hour, three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near to him, and they were frightened. You see, the Sea of Galilee is not really a sea. It's a large inland lake. At its deepest point, it's about 150 feet deep. And if you ever filled a five-gallon bucket up with water and tried to carry it, you sort of get the dynamic of this sea, 600 feet below sea level, and the mountains around, and the wind would come down, and it would just churn it like, like rocking a five-gallon bucket, and... That's where they, the disciples found themselves. Jesus sent them there. You can read that in the other Gospels. Old Testament parallel, very important. There was another sea experience. Do you remember it? The children of Israel at the Red Sea. Exodus 14, verse 21. It sets up the song of Moses, by the way. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the and the Lord drove back the sea it's by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Verse 22, and the people went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. A parallel account. So why did Jesus come this way? Why did he come walking on the sea? I mean, they would have probably eventually made it. Same reason. To put his power on display. This is about his identity. You see, this is all about his authority. And us seeing it and knowing it. The disciples, notice the disciples' fear. They, they go from fear to faith. It rode three or four miles. You see, what's the point there? Human help is impossible after three or four miles. That was, that was his point. You're not going to call the lifeguard there. You're not going to call the, the rescue team. The helicopters are not coming after you. There, no human help possible. Have you ever heard this? 
by well-meaning Christians. God will not give you more than you can handle. That has got to be one of the most all-time, unbiblical, ridiculous things Christians say. Look at the text. Of course they couldn't handle it. That was the point. The point was we have too much faith in our own ability to handle our own problems. That's our problem. We don't have just a lack of faith. We have too much faith in ourselves and not near enough faith in Him. This was the test. We are not the provider of the rescue of ourselves or anyone else. Moses wasn't the rescuer. He wasn't the provider. He was an instrument. It was God that brought the man. It was God that sent the water out of the rock. And what happened when Moses got in his flesh and thought he could do it on his own? This was the test. Human help's impossible. He knew their problem with faith and fear, just like he knows mine. He's loving enough to send the storms in our life so that we may learn to trust Him. This was the point. This means on the sea. No, Jesus wasn't walking on the bank. As some liberal scholars try to make it out, He was walking literally on the sea. How do we know? The disciples saw Him and was scared to death. Scared to death. How did he comfort them? It is I. Don't be afraid. The disciples went from fear to faith, from a lack of understanding to a realization. They realized their need and they received him into the boat. Verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land of which they were going. This word, to take him into. It's the word we get accept. It literally means to take a hold of. It means when, they, when he said, hey, it's me, don't be afraid. It means they grabbed a hold of him and brought him into the boat. This is so important. And I wish I had more, more time. But turn with me quickly to Isaiah. I just want you to see something about the fear of God. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in growth group. You're going to actually use this text. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one said, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5, Isaiah's response. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. He had taken from the tongs of the altar and touched my lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Don't miss this. You have not seen God. 
until you have seen him in his holiness and you have seen yourself in your depravity. You have not seen God till you have seen the estimation of his worth above all things in your sinfulness. And it is that moment that the fear of God hits you that God calls you to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And it is that moment that when he, when he says, do not fear, it's me. Until you fear God in his holiness and you in your sinfulness, you will never hear God say, it's okay, just don't fear. Jesus' points. First one. Storm, I mean, the, the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, only I can satisfy. I am the provider. Jesus' second point here in the storm is, I am the rescuer. You must take hold of me by faith. The truth is, when you hear such wonderful words as Christians, this is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, listen, who are being saved, it's the power of God. Psalms 1.11 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. You see, the disciples now are glad. You see that? They were glad to, to, to cling to him and pull him into the boat. Why? Because they knew who he was. Notice the test was over at that point. It says they were glad to take him in the boat. And immediately, important word, immediately the boat was at the land they were going. Most people say this was two miracles for the, for the price of one, so to speak. Not only did he walk on the water, they entered into the boat, but immediately... Once he entered into the boat, they were at the place that they were going to. They were at peace. I love this text. I want you to see it. First time I see it, it's hard for me to describe how, how I felt. Psalms 107. So I want you to see this. Turn with me in your Bibles there. Psalms 107. If we have any doubt who Yahweh is. Psalms 107, look at verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. That was the Psalms. Describing the exact situation to where Yahweh, the great I am, did exactly that to his people. I love the psalm. You know what the title of the psalm is? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Verse 1 and 2 of Psalms 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble. What's your greatest trouble today? Brothers and sisters, the point here, I hope you see it. John's point. Jesus is the better Moses. Why? Because of the better demonstration of the love of God for his people. There's two simple things. 
Jesus provides. Why is he better? Because he provides not by giving on manna and quail or food or anything, but by giving his life. Turn with me to Ephesians. We know these texts, but it, it's just always nice to roll around in them a little while as God's children. E Ephesians, I know you got chapter 2 in your notes, but look at chapter 1 to start with. Ephesians 1, look at verse 7. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Then he gets wound up in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. By the way, that's the greatest trouble. What will God do with your sin? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, that is better. He gave his life for us so that we might be saved. Listen, he rescues us by not only redeeming us, but listen, by adopting us. That's better. Galatians 4 verse 4 says this. Listen to the better of this. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, that is better. Jesus is better. Better than Moses. Why? Because his provision is eternal life and his rescue plan was adoption. So what today? One governing principle, brothers and sisters, to knowing how to navigate life in any season, and it is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He, this is the governing principle of our lives that will lead us to an all-satisfying joy in all of life, despite the season. Is Jesus Christ spiritually satisfying you today, uh, now? Are you daily taking hold of Jesus and who you are in Him? That's the better. We shared the gospel week somebody's been through a lot in their life I just love to tell them don't you know that you were created by God for a purpose 
You were created in His image. You are treasured. You are precious. You are valuable because your God created you and He stamped His image on you. You were created for Him. You're not a blob of goop that developed over millions of years. You were no empty vessel that just meant to be filled with the stuff of life. You were meant to be filled with Him. But sin is our problem. And sin separated us from God. We are created... By the, from the Creator that we were designed to serve. But God loved you so much. He sent His Son in order to bring us back to God. And all we need to do is repent and place our faith in Him. Confess He is the Savior of our soul and He is the Lord of everything. And then the rest of our life is lived by getting up every day and taking hold of Christ. You see, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 are wonderful. But Ephesians 5 begins to get into our life. Ephesians 5 verse 2, he says this. Because you were dead, verse chapter 2, and now you're alive. Verse 5, now walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There are two twin truths. This is John's point, and it's going to be his point, and I can do nothing but preach it. Truth number one, to experience an all-satisfying relationship with Jesus Christ, you must embrace the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. You must. But equally, friends, equally true, and must not be let go of is number two you must take personal responsibility to walk by faith and obedience to Jesus Christ this is what John is teaching us embrace the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ as Lord and embrace no one else's Lord but also embrace your God given responsibility to walk by faith and obedience to Jesus Christ and whatever it cost it cost this is the key to an all satisfying life so I just got one thing I want you to help me with, and we're going to pray about it in our prayer focus. How can we put God's power on display? How can we, individually and corporately, how can we God put God's power on display? That's what he's doing here. That's what he's teaching the disciples. Not to live a safe, comfortable Christianity. There's no such thing. Can I ask you something? As we move toward renovating our worship space, as the architect is right now working on that design, how can we put God's power on display? We're going to get those plans, and they're going to have a cost and a timeline and all those things. And it's going to be really easy to start thinking pragmatically, but I'm asking us to pray about how can we put God's power on display through that? As we desire to help the homeless, how can we put God's power on display? As I seek to disciple my kids, how can I put God's power on display? Can I ask some, from some of you who are retired, how are you using your retirement to put God's power on display? Some of us had plans. <laughs> but our physical just takes the time, doesn't it? And so I'm asking us today, it takes faith to clear your schedule. It takes faith because most of us don't have our schedules full of bad things. 
We have our schedules full of good things. But here's the question. When I look at all those things, how can I put God's power on display? Listen, that's the better. And that's what we must cling to. We have a Christ to cling to and a mission to accomplish. And we can only do it when we seek to put God's power on display because He is Lord and He is worthy of everyone's worship. Let's pray. And so now, Lord, we have heard your word. and Now it's time for us to respond. And Lord, we confess we all will respond. Those watching online and those sitting here, we're all about to respond one way or the other. And so, Lord, we want to respond in obedience by faith. And here's what one thing we want to do by faith and obedience. We want to come to the tables. We want to do what you commanded us to do. We want to remember that we could not approach you in prayer if your son would not have shed his blood and had his body broken. If he would not have bore our penalty and our wrath and our judgment, we would not be able to pray to you so boldly. We would not be able to worship you in joy. We wouldn't even have wanted to. But so, Lord, in obedience, we prepare ourselves. Even as we come to the tables, Lord, we ask you to forgive us. We, for, we ask for your forgiveness for worshiping the physical and letting our own spiritual soul starve. Oh God, forgive us. Correct us. May we put your word on this week. May we put ourselves on our knees to prayer by faith so that we may use this one life to put your glory on display. God, we come to you as we respond. We come to the tables to give. Because all that we have belongs to you. And you are our model for generosity. You gave your son. We respond when we leave here to get about our, our father's business. To scatter into this world and display you as the king of kings. Lord of lords. God, now. Thank you because of the blood of your son. Because we worship in the name. You will receive our worship. Not because we are worthy. But because Jesus is. And we are in him. Thank you Lord for the forgiveness of your son. For his work. For his person. We can call you father. And now we worship you. as our God. Jesus as our Lord, and it is His name we pray.